Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginian Saturdays. Today is Saturday, August 15th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to begin a long and, at least I hope, multifaceted series, which we are going to call The Protocols of Satan. And of course, this is part one. The Protocols, the so-called Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. And I hate to connect that word to these damn Jews so far as we know, have never been presented from our Christian identity worldview, and we hope to make a thorough presentation in that manner here. However, first, before even getting into the protocols themselves, which might take several weeks, we are going to have to establish the credibility of the protocols, because they certainly were not some pro-Aryan conspiracy against Jews, as they are often claimed to be. Rather, they fully reflect the course of a long-running Jewish conspiracy against Aryans, against Christendom, which has with all certainty been carried out against our European races since the emancipation of the Jews at the time of Napoleon, and even... earlier than that. Henry Ford recognized this and published The International Jew in book form and as a series in his newspaper, The Dearborn Independent, throughout the early 1920s. However, another book by Sergei Alexander Nihilus, The Protocols and World Revolution, was translated into English and supposedly, as some sources refute the account, edited by Boris Brassall and published in Boston in 1920 by Maynard Small and Company. The Nihilist book, from its second Russian edition published in 1905, had contained a copy of the protocols themselves and they were apparently the first version available in English. The ones published, the book published in English in 1920. Boris Brassall is a historian himself. He was a Russian lawyer who prosecuted a blood libel case against the Jews in Russia in 1912. He was an officer in the Tsar's army during the First Great War and was fortunate to have been sent on a mission to the United States, where he was during the Jewish takeover of Russia in October of 1917, and where he remained thereafter, remaining a writer for several decades in America and writing several books against Soviet socialism. 
In the course of the series, we help to employ all of these sources and others, as well as many of our own observations of what we shall often call here the Protocols of Satan. Understanding the protocols is, we believe, especially important today as the Jewish plans for complete Jewish world supremacy are quickly coming to their absolute and total fulfillment. If the Jews continue to have their way. Understanding the protocols, we can look at where we are today and see exactly to what extent Christians themselves have and still do cooperate with the Jewish devils who would enslave and destroy them forever. But Yahweh, the God of true Christian Israel, shall somehow save his people. If only they would wake the hell up. So to begin this series, we're going to make a presentation of the Jewish World Conspiracy, written by supposedly, Dr. Karl Bergermeister, and published in 1938. We will add information from many other sources as well. We could not find any information on Bergermeister himself, and we suspect that the name is a pseudonym for one of the participants in our story. So we will simply present what he said in his booklet. It is approximately 22 pages long, and with the material that we add to it and our own comments, it will take several segments of these coming presentations to complete. There is one small immediate problem. This story includes a lot of long Slavic names, which... I will probably butcher. I'll do my best to butcher them consistently. The Jewish World Conspiracy, the protocols of the elders of Zion before the court in Bern, in Switzerland, by Dr. Karl Bergemeister, 1938. The lawsuit over the authenticity of the protocols of the elders of Zion which took place in Bern during years 1934 and 1935, gave to Jewish and pro-Jewish publicists alike the much-wished-for opportunity to blazon forth into the world that in Bern, a judge, after objective consideration, had pronounced judgment to the effect that the protocols were a forgery. It is in this sense that the Jew Alexander Stein writes in his work, Adolf Hitler, a pupil of the elders of Zion. And the Jew Ivan Heilblut, the public slanderers, the protocols of the elders of Zion and their use in present-day politics. Of course, this is all Jewish propaganda to obfuscate the truth behind the protocols. Similarly, Irene Harland, the pro-Jewish propagandist, in her book, Seinkampf, His Struggle, A Reply to Hitler, and the Freemason, 
Count Richard Kudenhove Kologi, married to a Jewess in Hatred of the Jews in the Present Day, published in 1935. So all of these books, all of them which came out, between 1935 and 1937, took advantage of the decision issued by a court in Bern, Switzerland, that the protocols of Zion were a forgery. I'm not going to examine the, um, the first three of these authors. It's obvious that Alexander Stein and Ivan Heilblut are Jews, and therefore eternal liars. I didn't look into the Shiksa mentioned here, Irene Harland, but this um, Count R.N. Kudenhove Kalergi, who was the first of these four writers to use the Byrne decision to, in, a, in, in a book to defend the Jews and to complain about the hatred of the Jews. He's an interesting figure. The Kudenhoves, the family from which he came, were supposedly Flemish. I say supposedly. Christ tells us that by their fruits we know them. They were supposedly Flemish, and a wealthy family who had fled to Austria during the French Revolution. From there, the family has been systematically race-mixing ever since. First, it was only a... Um, a Polish woman of supposedly Greek heritage named Kalergi, hence the name Kudenhove Kalergi. I guess she was a feminist, so the family adopted both their patrilineal name and the name of this woman. But later they started intermarrying with open Jews. I say open Jews because I suspect the Polish-Greek Kalergi to a Jew. I don't know if I could prove it, but I suspect it. But later they married both with open Jews and even with Japanese. Richard Kudenhove Kalergi, who wrote this book, Defending the Jews and Assailing Anti-Semitism in Europe in 1935, he had a Japanese mother, and he had joined a prominent Masonic Lodge in Vienna in the early 1920s. Kudenhove Kalergi, this half-jap bastard, should be on the lips of, his name should be on the lips of every Christian because of what he did during the course of his lifetime. He became the founder of a pan-European movement shortly after he joined that Masonic Lodge. And that pan-European movement, because of his family's connections and, and their wealth, was ultimately financed by Louis de Rothschild, Max Warburg, and other Jewish bankers. This pan-European movement had several thousand significant members by the mid-1920s and held its first Congress of Vienna in 1926. 
Kudenhove, the half-chat bastard, remained its leader until his death in 1972. His movement persisted throughout the war, but Kudenhove himself waited the war out in the United States, to which he had fled from National Socialist Germany. According to one German-language website on Freemasonry, and it will be um, all of the links and the resources that I mentioned this evening, I pray I don't miss any, will be linked somewhere in the notes to this presentation that will be posted at Christagenia. According to one German-language website on Freemasonry, and I quote, in the 1930s, Count Richard Nicholas Kodenhove or Kudenhove Kalergi turned in various publications against Nazi anti-Semitism in the German Reich. He continued to write books and articles in America, and that's the end of my quote. He continued to write books and articles in America, and after the war, 1946, Harry S. Truman implemented many of Kudenhove's proposals as American policy in Europe. When Kudenhove died in 1972, he was succeeded by Otto von Habsburg, a scion of the ancient noble family in Austria, who held the same post until 2004. The Pan-European Party still exists, and while it distinguishes itself, it even has a website, I think it's paneuropa.org or something like that. I didn't link that. And while it distinguishes itself as separate from any political party, imagining itself to be a society that transcends all political parties, it is a society which is most responsible for the modern European Union. Even according to Wikipedia, a source, an untrustworthy source, but we will quote it several times tonight for various reasons. Even according to Wikipedia, which normally downplays or obfuscates the true ambitions of the political left, Kudenhove Kalergi's political philosophy was to replace, now remember this guy started in a Masonic Lodge in like 1920, and his policies are implemented not only in the American post-war plan for Europe, but in the EU today, his policies are implemented. He's the spiritual father and the philosophical father of the modern EU, European Union. His political philosophy was, and he wrote this, and he wrote this as early as 1926, to replace the nationalist German ideal of racial community with the goal of an ethnically heterogeneous, read multicultural, right, diversity, an ethnically heterogeneous and inclusive European nation based on a community of culture. In other words, he wanted to put all Europe 
and beyond in a blender. And he expressed the supports on Jews by the pan-European movement. Well, Jews were funding it, right? He got all of his initial funding from Bernard Baruch, from Warburg, from Rothschild. He expressed the supports on Jews by the pan-European movement and the benefits to Jews with the elimination of racial hatred and economic rivalry brought by the United States of Europe. So he's one of the fathers, one of the fathers, not the only one, of the idea that when we're all bastards, like he was, because he was half Japanese, just had to have a lot of money and a lot of Jewish connections. When we're all bastards, like he was, we won't hate each other anymore. I wonder if he's ever been to Africa. These statements were made as early as 1926. So here we see that um, in 1935, he's probably one of the first Europeans to write a book discrediting anti-Semitism while also attacking the protocols of Zion based on the decision by the Bern court in Switzerland. Studying the Kudenhoes, one can only come to the conclusion that it was not Hitler, but the Jews all along who wanted to conquer and unify Europe, forming it in their own bastardly image. And they did, but Hitler withstood them. Here we also see a representation of the type of writer who would attempt to discredit the protocols of the Jews and Masons. That's what they should really be called. So we will turn to we will return to Dr. Bergemeister. All of the above, meaning those four writers of books intent on discrediting the protocols, all of the above, with apparent intent, pass over the fact that already in 1935, a short time after the proceedings in Bern, a book appeared from the pen of Dr. Stephen Voss entitled, The Faulty Judgment in the Byrne Protocols Case, published, that's published by the University Bodung Verlag at Erfurt, in which, from the documents submitted to the court and the minutes of the proceedings, the author furnished exhaustive proof of the fact of what, that what took place in Byrne was a mockery of justice. But the Jews grabbed it and, and ran with the ball the full hundred yards, trying to use the court decision in Bern to discredit the protocols, the to discredit the legitimacy of the protocols. Bergmeister continues. Moreover, when Jewry, with incredible frivolity, initiated the proceedings and led them to an apparent victory, they do not seem to have reckoned with the possibility that this very lawsuit and the far-reaching research which it was to initiate would bring to light material of so viable, so valuable a nature that from then on it would hardly be possible for any thinking person to maintain that the protocols were a forgery. In the present pamphlet, a certain familiarity with the protocols 
is assumed. And if any of my listeners don't have that familiarity, in the in in the um, the announcement of tonight's program is a graphic at Christagenia. It's the cover of a book titled The Jewish Peril. And clicking on that will bring you to a um a copy of the English translation of the Protocols of Zeon by Victor Marsden, done later in the 1920s, I believe, which is at the Mein Kampf project at Christagenia. I will link it again with the notes to this program. Our writer begins, How the Protocols Came into Existence, Part 1 of his pamphlet, and... In this regard, it will become apparent later why the Byrne lawsuit is so important, because it was actually a lawsuit against certain Swiss politicians who were running on anti-Jewish platforms, and the Jews were actually suing them in order to get them to stop employing the protocols in their campaigns. They were handing out copies of the protocols in their campaign literature. Now, today in Switzerland, I guess we couldn't imagine such a thing. But back then, there were still some Swiss who stood up for what Swiss was. How the protocols came into existence. The protocols of the elders of Zion formed a text of a lecture under 24 headings dealing with the political, economic, and financial program of Judeo-Masonry for the establishment of world dom- Jewish world domination. That's exactly what they are. The authorship, time and place of the lecture, as well as the actual date at which it was written down, has not up until now been possible to ascertain. In the matter of the authorship, the American writer F. Fry, following upon investigations carried out in Russia by Henry Ford, states that the protocols are the work of the Jewish writer and leader Akkad Ham, a.k.a. all Jews have a.k.a.s, right? Asher Ginsberg and that they originated in Odessa. Certain circumstances go to show that the protocols, perhaps following upon the lines of a concept by Akkad Ham, formed the subject of a lecture in French Masonic lodges. The bases for this supposition are the following, namely, that Freemason policy follows the lines of the protocols, and that S.A. Nihilus, Sergei Nihilus, tells us that the copy which came into his hands in 1901 bore the following inscription, signed by the representatives of Zeon of the 33rd degree, which would be a Masonic designation. Now this S.A. Nihilus, Sergei Alexandrovich Nihilus, is going to figure prominently throughout our discussion. 
on the protocols. And he seems to have been a pious Russian Christian who was writing about the Jewish threat to Christendom as early as 1901 when he published a book entitled The Great Within the Small and the Antichrist as a political possibility in the near future. And of course, we know that in Russia, that happened in 1917. So he was pretty damn close. Then, in 1905, after he himself had obtained a copy of the protocols, he published them in a second edition of his book. Subsequent editions were printed in 1911 and again in 1917, on the eve of the Bolshevik Revolution, where he had actually changed the title to the much more alarming he, meaning the Antichrist, right? He is at the doors, and he damn well was. We have a copy of this book in PDF format and plan to make presentations of it at length or possibly even in full as this series progresses. But for now, we will return to Dr. Bergmeister. The story generally put about by Jewry that in the case of the protocols, we have to do with a pamphlet drawn up by the Russian police, and more particularly by Counselor P.J. Rachkowski, the purpose of which was to calumniate Jewry, is one which will simply not hold water. The so-called evidence brought forth in support of this story being wholly without foundation of any kind and they still try to uphold it today. Equally untenable is the theory emanating from anti-Jewish quarters that the protocols owe their origin to the Zionist Congress in Basel in 1897. There are, however, some grounds for the supposition that the text which had already been drawn up between the years 1890 and 1895 formed the subject of a debate at the meeting of Brethren of the B'nai B'rith Order in Basel, Switzerland, in 1897. Proved beyond all doubt, however, is the fact that the first person to possess a copy of the document in French was the late Russian major and court-martial Alexei Nikolajewicz Sukhotin of Shern in the government of Tula. Sergei Nihilus, in his book, The Great Within the Small, confirms this fact. It is further confirmed by S.S. Nihilus, the son of Sergei Nihilus. In a written declaration dated 1936 to the effect that he personally was present when Sukhotin handed the document to his father. I was successful, meaning Bergmeister. I was successful in finding out a further relation of Sukhotin's in the person of Madame Antonia Porfirina Manikowski, 
Nisuhotin, widow of the Russian admiral of that name, meaning Manikowski, and resident at the moment in Yugoslavia. This lady gave me, on the 13th of December, 1936, a written declaration to the effect that in her youth, she, on many occasions, visited the Sukhotins on their estate. On the occasion of one of her visits, about the year 1895, she was witness of how a transcript was made of a copy of the protocols by Sukhotin's sister, Mademoiselle Vera Sukhotin, and his niece, Mademoiselle Olga Wichnuetsky, later Madame Lotin, probably, when she was married. Vera Sukhotin, being long since deceased, and Madame Manikowski advised me to visit Madame Lotin, who was still living in Paris. Much to my disappointment, I found that in consequence of the death of her husband, Madame Lotin had become completely insane and was now living in an asylum near Paris and no longer capable of being interviewed. Having regard to the date in question, the declaration of Madame Manikowski assumes particular importance for the reason that in her books, Waters Flowing Eastward, on page 89, and The Jew Our Master, on page 95, Mrs. L. Fry publishes a letter written to her on the 17th of April, 1927, by Philip Petrovich Stepanov, who died in 1932, late procurator of the Holy Synod in Moscow, in which Stepanov states that already, in 1895, he had received a transcript of the protocols from Major Sukhotin, and adds that he received it through the intermediary of a lady in Paris. That lady will be identified, but not tonight. I'm sorry. This Mrs. L. Fry, the author of Waters Flowing Eastward and The Jew, Our Master, the title was given in French, but I'm not going to attempt it if I don't have to. This Leslie Fry was the pen name of Paquita Louise de Shishmaref, the Barnes Review wrote an article or published an article on her probably about 15 years ago. If, if I can remember, I'll dig it out for this series. Her most famous book was Waters Flowing Eastward. It was published in 1931. And it is said to assert that the Jews were to blame for both capitalism and Bolshevism, something we would completely agree with. If she asserted that, we can wholeheartedly attest that her assertion is correct. While we have never read the book, we know that it is available from the Barnes Review, from the bookstore there. I've seen it there. I've just never ordered it. She was evidently an American who married a Russian Imperial Army officer who was murdered by the Jews during the Bolshevik Revolution. 
back to Dr. Bergmeister. Who this lady was, meaning the woman from which Sue Coton had first received the copy of the protocols in Paris, who this lady was, it has not been possible up till now to ascertain. Sergei Nihilus also writes in his book that Sukotin, on handing the document to him in 1901, mentioned her name to him, but that he had forgotten it. In this connection, Nihilus' son informed me, meaning Bergmeister, that his father had only mentioned the matter because Sukotin had made him promise to keep the lady's name a secret as long as she lived. From all this, it becomes clear that a transcript of the protocols was in existence in Russia in the year 1895 already, that is to say, two years before the first Congress in Basel. According to, meaning that Congress of the Jews, According to data furnished by Nihilus' son, the first publication of the protocols took place in the winter of 1902 and 03 in the Moscowia Wydmosti. I have unfortunately not up till now succeeded in obtaining a copy of this paper. As against this, it is a matter beyond all doubt that the protocols were first published in the Snamya, the paper formerly edited by Krushawan, in the numbers appearing between the 28th of August and the 7th of September, 1903. It was first in the year 1905 that Sergei Alexandrovich Nihilus included the text of the protocols in his book on the Antichrist entitled The Great Within the Small and the Antichrist as a political possibility in the near future. This was in the second edition of his book, of which the first edition, which appeared in 1901, did not contain a copy of the Protocols. The third edition appeared in 1911, and in 1917, the fourth edition appeared under the altered title, He is at the Doors. Now, this is the edition published in English in Boston in 1920 that we hope to present at least in excerpts and discuss here over the coming months. In that publication, it is also attested that Nihilus published a copy of the Protocols in a 1905 edition of his book. In fact, much of this information is also attested in Nihilus's book. In the year 1906, much of this early information, in the year 1906, the Russian author, George Butmi, published the protocols in his book, Speeches Which Reveal the Truth, The Enemies of Mankind. I guess he's talking about Jews, right? The fourth edition of which appeared in 1907. In the rest of Europe, the protocols remained completely unknown. It was first after the World War that Russian emigrants brought Nihilus's book to North America and to Germany. It was thus that a copy came into the hands of the president 
of the association against the arrogance of Judaism. Now, I have read, but I haven't yet been able to establish that this is directly related to what is called the Fool Society. Martin Bormann and Alfred Rosenberg were said to be members of this association. So it is from North America that a copy came into the hands of the president of the Association Against the Arrogance of Judaism in Berlin. Muller von Hausen, who had it translated in the year 1919 and published under his pseudonym Gottfried Zerbeek under the title The Secrets of the Learned Elders of Zion. A second edition was published by Theodore Fritsch with the incorrect title of the Zenith Protocols. A 17th edition of this brochure in 1936 appeared in the Hammer Verlag at Leipzig with the correct title of the Protocols of Zion. And there is a difference in the titles. The Jews were, of course, always claiming to be the Israelites of Scripture, and Protocols of Zion would refer to that claim. However, Zionism, where Fritz wrote the Zionist Protocols, Zionism is a political philosophy of the Jewish return to their supposed homeland in Palestine to establish a state. That's a political idea which gained popularity in the late 19th century, and the protocols had nothing to do with that. So that title would be incorrect. And now from part two of Bergmeister's booklet, the first Jewish attempts at defense earlier even than the four authors he had mentioned in the introduction to his booklet, Kuhnho being one of them. In the year 1921, Jewry took up the defense against the protocols. In rapid succession, the three following articles appeared. The first, on the 25th of February, 1921, the American Hebrew published an interview given by the Russian princess Catherine Rodzi will to the Jewish reporter Isaac Landman on the 12th and 13th of May 1921 the French count Armand Dushaila published an article in two parts in the Russian paper Dernier's Nouvelle in Paris I opted to pronounce the French rather than the Russian. I'm sorry I didn't get an English translation. The third article was from the pen of the English journalist Philip Graves and appeared in three parts in the London Times on the 16th, 17th, and 18th of August, 1921. All of these characters will be thoroughly discredited here. Princess Rodziwell, Bergermeister continues, Princess Rodziwell declared that the protocols were first drawn up after the Russo-Japanese War and the First Russian Revolution in 1905, 
by the Russian State Counselor Peter Ivanovich Rachkowski, Chief of the Russian Secret Police in Paris, and by his agent, Matthew Golowinski. During her stay in Paris at the time, the last named, meaning Golowinski, had shown her the manuscript which he had just composed, and which had, moreover, a large blue ink stain on a front page. It had been planned in Russian conservative circles to incite the Tsar Nicholas II against the Jews by means of this publication. Now, of course, everything there is a lie. He's only repeating Rosiewill's claim. Soon we shall see, as it has been mentioned here by Bergmeister already, that according to the testimony of Sir Guy Nihilus, before 1905, he had received his copy of the protocols from a prominent Russian official, actually in 1901, who had already informed him that it was too late to act on them. We will read that shortly. However, Nihilus, first publishing the protocols in the 1905 edition of his book, the protocols could not have been maintained as Rodsey will attest. We will see plenty of that this evening. This princess, Catherine Rodsiewill, was born Countess Ekaterina Adamnova wow, Rzewuska, and married the Polish aristocrat Wilhelm Rodsiewill, who was of the same family that the sister of Jacqueline Kennedy, Caroline Lee Bouvier, later married into. So the name Rosiewill may be familiar to people as old as me. It is reported that Wilhelm Rosiewill died in Vienna in 1911. However, the Princess Catherine and Wilhelm Rosiewill were divorced by 1902. The Polish aristocracy had heavily intermarried with the Jews in Poland, especially after the time of the Frankists in the mid-18th century. But in this respect, we can only wonder about Catherine Rodziwill. But in any event, soon after, Catherine Rodziwill became known as Catherine Kolb, K-O-L-B. She had married a gentleman named Kolb, and that did not last either. And she was stalking the famous British politician Cecil Rhodes and tried to get him to marry her, but he refused. She retaliated by forging his name on a promissory note. In 1902, she was convicted of forgery and spent two years or by some reports, 18 months, in a South African prison. She had also had problems in courts in London later on because she failed to pay her debts. Then she appeared in New York Harbor in 1917. Later, almost as soon as the protocols were published in the United States, she gave interviews with stories that the protocols were a forgery. Rodziewill seems to be an expert at forgeries, as we shall see. 
So who better for the Jews to employ in their campaign to smear the protocols than a disgraced and desperate woman, and possibly, although we can't prove it, a crypto-Jew by the fruits you know them. On April 30th, 1917, the New York Times ran a front-page article with the headline, and we will include a screenshot of it here, with the headline, Ex-Princess Held at Ellis Island, Former Wife of Prince Roziwill Must Explain Her Career in South Africa came here to lecture, had one society woman to be patroness of a talk on Russian royalty for war relief. She was trying to raise funds. The article reports that she was trying to raise funds for Russian prisoners of war, which perhaps was just another scam. This article reported that Mrs. Catherine Kalb, formerly the prin- Princess Catherine Rodziwill, wife of Prince William Rodziwill, from whom she was divorced, arrived here yesterday on a Norwegian steamship to lecture under the management of William B. Fekins on the Russian imperial court and the present conditions in that country. Of course, this is six years before the I'm sorry, six months before the Bolshevik Revolution. Russia was still plagued by the First War. Returning to Dr. Bergermeister, Count Dushela, the second person who immediately published articles refuting the validity of the protocols. Comte Dushela wrote that he visited Nihilus in Russia in the year 1909. The later had shown him the manuscript with the blue ink stain, and had told him that he received it from his longtime friend, Madame Natalia Afaniskova, or whatever, Afaniskuna, perhaps. Dushela afterwards stated that her name was Komarowski, who had in turn received it from Ratchkowski in Paris. Now, this is another character. This Count Armand Alexandre de Blanquet Dushela, who lived until 1945. One online library says that he was a French, a French nobleman who converted to Russian Orthodoxy. He is chiefly remembered for giving crucial evidence and or testimony for the prosecution at the Bern trial in 1935 against the notorious protocols of Zion. Later we will find that Dushela was actually... He started out as a monarchist and actually changed sides in Russia during the Bolshevik Revolution, began, an, began spying and agitating amongst the White Army and the Cossacks, was almost hung for that, the French 
saved his ass from being hung, and he spent the rest of his life campaigning in favor of Jews. We've already seen that S.A. Um, Nihilus had never re- revealed the name of a woman, as Dushela claims, so Dushela was apparently lying. In the Protocols and World Revolution, which is the translation of S.A. Nihilus's book, which was edited, presumably, by Boris Bressel, and published in Boston in 1920 by Maynard Small and Company, we read this on page 11. Mr. Nihilus, at pages 86 to 92 of his book, It Is Near the Door, states that he received a manuscript containing the protocols of the meetings of the Zenith Men of Wisdom in 1901 from Mr. Alexis Nikolaevich Sukotin. At one time, Marshal of Nobility in the District of Chern in Central Russia, and later, Vice Governor of the Government of Stavropol in South Russia, and that when giving the manuscript to Mr. Nihilus, Mr. Sukotin had said, take it into your full possession, read it, become inspired, and make out of it something useful to the Christian soul. Otherwise, it might remain with me unused. From a political standpoint, it is useless, for it is too late to act on it. In other words, Sukhoden believed that it was over for Russia in 1905. From a spiritual standpoint, however, it might be otherwise. In your hand, with God's help, it will bear fruit. We still don't have that fruit, hardly. Mr. Nihilus states that Mr. Sukhoden told him that the manuscript was originally obtained by a lady whose name is not given and who, he said, obtained it in a mysterious way. Other sources claim to know the identification of this mysterious woman, and we will discuss it at some point in the future, probably next week, when we address Dushela at greater length. However, as for Dushela, he barely escaped being hanged by the Cossacks as a Bolshevik agent in 1921, and he was certainly guilty. While he apparently started out on the side of the monarchy, during the Jewish takeover, he switched sides and was employed in citing the Cossacks against the White Army to divide the opponents of the Jews in Russia. So he was an agitator. Now to return to Dr. Bergemeister. Philip Graves, the Englishman who wrote the third set of articles in August of 1921, Philip Graves wrote that the the protocols had been composed with the aid of the dialogue in hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu a book written by the French advocate, which is a lawyer, Maurice Jolie, the first edition of which appeared in Brussels in 1864 and the second in 1868. Continuing to attempt to discredit the protocols, 
It is said on Wikipedia that one of the few copies of the dialogue, meaning the book by Jolie, the dialogue in hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu, one of the few copies of the dialogue to survive confiscation by Napoleon III's secret police found its way to Switzerland, where it was picked up by the Russian secret police Akrana and served as the basis for the protocols of the elders of Zion. Now, that's Wikipedia's claim. That's what the Jews claim about the origin of the protocols quite often. The truth is just as likely that Jolie, who was a lawyer, who worked in the French Ministry of State in Paris for over 10 years, I think it was from 1849 to 1859, Jolie knew what was circulating among high-level Masons and Jews in France and in turn borrowed from it for his book. That's just as plausible. His book was actually a satire against the political ambitions of Napoleon III, Napoleon III. That's why the copies were confiscated. Jolie was found dead in 1878 at the age of 49. And he is found to have plagiarized other earlier works of literature in his own writing. So... He was a plagiarizer himself, just like that this um, Prince Catherine Rodziwill accuses the protocols of being a forgery, and she was a forger herself. <laughs> she was actually a pretty um, frequent forger. She'd done it several times. But our author here, Dr. Bergemeister, for the meantime acknowledges that the protocols did indeed copy quite heavily from Jolie's book and promises to discuss it later. The only thing, he goes on to say, the only thing that is true about these reports, with which I'll deal later on, is the statement that the author of the protocols made extensive use of Jolie's book, in that he copied whole sentences and even whole paragraphs from it. And I would contend that it's very possible that both items were copies of something else. But I can't prove that. But it's a possibility. So we should not really just take it for granted that the author of the protocol is copied from Jolie's book. And that he copied whole sentences and even whole paragraphs from it. He committed an open plagiarism on Jolie. This fact, however, cannot be taken as furnishing the least proof that the protocols are an anti-Semitic forgery, for it is not a question of whether the text of the protocols came into being, partly through the misuse of the text of another book, but solely of whether the protocols contain the program of Jewish world domination and were written by a Jew for the Jewish people. The fact that extreme, externally a plagiarism is to hand is no proof that the contents are a forgery. The question of forgery would first arise when it could be proved that the protocols had actually been composed 
by an anti-Semite for the purpose of slandering Jewry. Jewry even made the attempt to bring proof of this and that they caused Princess Radziwill to announce that Golowinski had composed the document under the guidance of Ratchkowski. The attempt to prove this, however, as I will afterwards show, was a complete failure. And Bergmeister did well here to assert that it was the Jews who caused Rodziwell to say what she had said in America about the protocols. And with this, we will commence with part three of the Jewish World Conspiracy, which describes the proceedings in Bern in Switzerland. When, in spite of the above, the protocols made their way around the world and made their appearance in practically every country and in a variety of languages, Jewry finally decided to obtain a judicial finding on the subject. On the 26th of June, 1933, the Federation of Jewish Communities of Switzerland and the Bern Jewish Community brought an action in the courts with a view to obtaining a judgment to the effect that the brochure by Theodore Fritsch, the Zionist Protocols, was literary trash, and further with a view to obtaining an order prohibiting its publication. As a matter of form, the action was brought against five members of the National Front and of the Heimatwer, and among them, as principal defendant, Silvio Schnell, who had distributed the brochure at a party meeting. As an expert to the Jewish plaintiffs, the judge appointed Dr. A. Baumgarten, professor of criminal law at the University of Basel, and a Jew, as expert to the defense, the director of the World Service at Erfurt, Lieutenant Colonel, I'm sorry, Lieutenant Colonel Ulrich Fleischhauer. As presiding expert, he appointed the pro-Jewish Swiss author, C.A. Loosely. The Heimenoir, or Home Defense, was a Swiss political party founded in 1925 in Zurich, in Zurich, Switzerland. It is said on German language websites to have leaned towards Italian fascism and to have been anti-Jewish. And the German version of Wikipedia says, there was a certain degree of anti-Semitism among the farmers, which was directed primarily against Jewish property and livestock dealers and department store owners. The Heimatwar was aligned, it was a separate party, but it was aligned with the National Front Party in Switzerland throughout the 1930s. This C.A. Loosely is another interesting character. He was born a bastard, 
out of wedlock. His parentage, and I say bastard because he's more than simply born out of wedlock by church standards. His parentage, I cannot find listed. Perhaps it's not even known. And he was raised in Swiss youth institutions in the 19th, early 20th century, I should say. In 1927, he wrote his first book against anti-Semitism. So here's a boy with... um. Without parents, evidently, he was given up to these youth institutions because his mother probably didn't know who his father was, probably the local banker. And, and in, as soon as he comes of age, he starts writing books against anti-Semitism. In 1927, he wrote his first book against anti-Semitism, and the Swiss Federation of Jewish Communities bought 300 copies of it. Although some Jews in Switzerland disagreed with Lusley's persuasion that the Swiss Jews should be assimilated rather than remaining a distinct population. As Ahisquis had written so long ago, the bastard is forever an enemy to the true-born. By this, he was perceived as having an expertise that put him into the burn trial as an expert. The expert for the defense here, Ulrich Fleischauer, maybe the guy that wrote this book, he may be, Dr. Karl Bergmeister might be a pen name for him, but I could never prove that, but I kind of have that gut feeling. I can't find anything on Carl Bergmeister. Maybe I'm just not looking hard enough. Ulrich Fleischhauer, the expert for the defense in this case, is another interesting character. He is said to have been a leading publisher of anti-Semitic books and news articles reporting on a perceived Judeo-Masonic conspiracy theory and nefarious plots by clandestine Jewish interests to dominate the world. Imagine that. Perhaps we'll comment more on him when we can cut through some of the propaganda about him in the light of his role in this trial. We see a lot online about him, and a lot of it we don't really trust, knowing from where it comes. So we see that the Jews really wanted to prevent these Swiss nationalist politicians from using the protocols as anti-Jewish propaganda in their usual way of lawsuits and the instilling of fear. That's what Jews do. They had already sued Henry Ford, in the United States in 1927, six years before this, for the same basic reasons, the publishing of the protocols. The Pro-Jewish American Bar Foundation says in the introduction to its own investigation of the Ford lawsuit, as it calls it, that this project examines a well-known event in the life of Henry Ford, a 1927 federal libel lawsuit against him and his anti-Semitic newspaper. 
from the perspective of the people who sought to stop him. I don't think anybody's ever sued the newspaper for being anti-Christian or anti-German or anti-Italian. Too bad. In the end, Ford did stop publishing the Dearborn Independent, but on terms he controlled. He evaded the efforts of several distinguished lawyers to use law to compel him to take responsibility for what we today call hate speech. So now we see where the American Bar Foundation stands. Ford was no champion of free speech rights. He managed to avoid losing the lawsuit by engineering a sleight of hand that took advantage of the diversity of views, politics, and intellectual loyalties among American Jews that Ford's newspaper so narrowly caricatured. In 1924, to regain the public spotlight and burnish his image among American conservatives, Ford directed the Independent to resume an anti-Semitic campaign that had first begun in 1920 and lasted for two years, playing on the crushing boom and bust cycles that plagued American agriculture after the war. In this second anti-Semitic campaign, the Independent attacked the agricultural cooperative movement as alien to the individual spirit of American husbandry. The Independent accused Aaron Sapiro, the movement's leader, of defrauding American farmers to advance an international Jewish conspiracy. Ford saw himself as the only legitimate champion of rural America. He targeted Sapiro both because he was Jewish and because he was not a farmer. And to me, it sounds like Henry Ford was addressing the same problem that the Swiss farmers of the Heimat were, were facing. But in hindsight, we can see that the Rothschild and Warburg support for the Kudenhoves, internationalism, and the destruction of ethnicity in Europe, and the condition of Europe today as the result of that, is in fact proof by itself that Ford and the others were right. Jews took over the farms in the United States in a Roosevelt administration. The entire food supply, in fact. The Jews at the American Bar Foundation should all be taken out and thrown into the lake of fire. They will be. Back to Dr. Bergmeister. At the end of October 1934, the 16 witnesses called by the Jewish plaintiffs were heard. And on the 14th of May 1935, judgment was entered to the effect that the protocols were a forgery and demoralizing literature. No other decision was possible because on the one hand, the Marxist judge accepted the falsehoods of the princess Radziwill and of the Comte du Sheila as correct, and consequently was bound to accept the expertises of Baumgarten and Loosely, which were founded upon these falsehoods. And on the other hand, 
because he refused to listen to the objections raised by the expert for the defense, Fleischhauer, against these falsehoods. Quite apart from this, the judge went so far in his preconceived opinion that the protocols were a forgery and in his lack of objectivity under undisguised pressure from jury that he did not even stop at deliberately setting aside the conditions laid down in the Swiss Civil Code for the carrying out of legal proceedings. Thus, he only allowed the witnesses brought by the Jewish plaintiffs to be heard, whereas 40 witnesses brought by the defendants, not a single one was allowed a hearing. The proceedings were accordingly carried out solely upon the testimony of the Jewish plaintiffs. And further, although Swiss law demands that in the case of every lawsuit, shorthand minutes of the proceedings be taken by an official of the court, the judge did not adhere to this condition, but permitted the Jewish plaintiffs to appoint two private stenographers to keep the register of the official proceedings during the hearing of their own witnesses. As therefore no legal record of the proceedings was kept, it follows that the whole procedure and the verdict itself are both null and void. In other ways, also, bias may be said to have celebrated triumphs. Thus, the expert, Fleischhauer, was hindered by a variety of expedients from making use of his legal right to examine the documents of the other side. And whereas the two Swiss experts were allowed a good eight months for the preparation of their expertises, the judge demanded that Fleischhauer should prepare his expertise within six weeks. It was only after a protest that he agreed to extend this period by the insufficient term of one month. In consequence of all this, the principal defendant, Silvio Schnell, lodged an appeal through his counsel, Hans Ruth. After a lapse of two and a half years, the case was reopened in the Court of Criminal Appeal in Bern on October 27, 1937. Messieurs Ersprung and Ruth, counsel's the defendants demanded that the verdict given in the court of first instance be quashed and their clients acquitted. Mr. Roof submitted that the evidence taken down during the original proceedings had not been submitted to the witnesses for signature and argued that little credibility could in any event be attached to their statements. He pointed out, moreover, that all the Russian documents which had been submitted to the court by Loosely were uncertified copies of the originals and that a number of mistakes had been discovered in the different translations. Mr. Roof finally declared that it was not possible to apply the Bernese law to the incriminated document because its contents were of a political and not of a moral nature. The assistant public prosecutor, Loder, recognized that the manner in which the official record of the proceedings had been kept in the court of first instance had not been correct, and he further recognized that a whole series of errors in the sense of the penal code had been committed. On November 1st, 1937, the appeal court pronounced judgment in the following terms. The accused, Silvio Schnell, is acquitted without indemnity, meaning that he would have to pay his own court costs. All elements which might constitute a basis for the charge being absent. So there was no basis for the charge 
but he would still have to pay his own costs. In summing up, the president declared that any expertise on the authenticity or non-authenticity of the protocols was superfluous. The protocols of the elders of Zeon being a political pamphlet of a polemical order, the Bernice Law did not apply. For this reason, a complete acquittal had been pronounced. The president declared with emphasis that the judge in the court of first instance had no right to set on foot inquiries as to the authenticity or the non-authenticity of the protocols for the reason that the matter was irrelevant to the consideration of whether any moral publication was to hand. So it was decided that under Swiss law, the lawsuit could not even be made. And this important lawsuit, therefore, Jewry have not attained their object. When in spite of this, the Jewish pressure, the Jewish press, announced that all was decided by the Court of Appeal was that the protocols were not demoralizing literature and that the declaration of the judge in the, first, in the Court of First Instance that they are a forgery retains its validity. This amounts to no more than a gross misleading of public opinion. In the Court of Appeal, the judgment of the first court was quashed in its entirety and the considerations upon which the first judge based his faulty judgment, and more especially his assumption that a forgery was to hand, were deprived of all weight. Wikipedia very well represents the Jewish spin on the outcome of the appeals court decision. And it says that Theodore Fisher, and it should be Theodore Fritsch, Theodore Fisher himself, and the lawyer of Silvio Snell, Hans Ruf, immediately appealed to the Berner Obergericht, or the appeals court, which acquitted both defendants in 1937 on purely formal legal grounds, arguing that the term Schundeliterature of the Bernice Law is not applicable to political publications, but only to immoral or obscene publications. The court refused the obligation of the private plaintiffs to pay the costs of defense of the acquitted defendants, explaining that the one who circulates such sort of most vulgar instigating articles has to pay himself the costs resulting from them. Fisher had to pay 100 francs to the state fees of the trial which were evidently 28,000 francs paid by the canton of Bern. The words concerning the order that the defendants shoulder their own costs are verified in a copy of the appellate court decision available online. They're in German. I won't read them here, but I did verify that they do say what Wikipedia says and I will include that document with this presentation when it's posted at Christagenia. Part four of Bergmeister's booklet, the supposed proofs of forgery, meaning proofs of the forgery of the protocols, of the evidence brought by jury against the authenticity of the protocols already in 1921, 
And in Bern, in 1934-35, the following may be said to be the substance. The assumption made by Princess Raziwill that the protocols were drawn up in the year 1906 after the Russo-Japanese War and the First Russian Revolution may be said to be false, if only on the following grounds, namely that the text of the protocols can be proved to have been in the hands of Stepanov already in 1895, and that in 1901 it was in the hands of Nihilus, and that in the year 1903 it was published in the Snamia, and we've mentioned the Snamia earlier, Pavel Alexandrovich Khrushchevon, whom our author had mentioned earlier, was a Russian journalist and an official in Imperial Russia. He came from a noble but impoverished Moldovan family. In 1903, he was the publisher and editor of the St. Petersburg newspaper, Snamya, which means in English, the standard, where the German-language Wikipedia website even admits that the protocols were published in Russian in 1903. Bergmeister continues, it can further be proved that in 1905 and some years previously, both Ratchowski and Galowinski were no longer in Paris. Thus does the whole catena, a Latin word for chain, the whole chain of lies contrived by Princess Rosiewill fall to the ground. The woman, moreover, falsely gave herself out as a princess in her interview with the press in 1921, which it was in New York, whereas already in 1914, after her divorce from Prince William Rosiewill, which happened in 1902, actually, she married an engineer named Carl Emil Kolb, from whom she was again shortly afterwards divorced. And in 1921, upon following, following upon a new marriage, she became Mrs. Danvin. Now, in 1917, the New York Times reports that her last name was called. It was in vain for the expert Fleischauer to point out to the court during the proceedings that the evidence of this woman could not be taken seriously, if only for the reason that she was proven a forger and a crook. The court refused to make any investigation of her previous career. Now, when she had arrived in New York... She was forced, as the New York Times reported, she was forced to remain at Ellis Island until she explained her criminal career, and especially what she had done in South Africa, according to that same 1917 New York Times article. It might therefore be fitting at this point to mention some of her shady actions in the past, about the year 1900. She attached herself to the diamond mine owner Cecil Rhodes. Now the New York Times corroborates this. At the time he was going to South Africa, on the grounds of pure vanity, apparently she published a paper called Greater Britain, which she edited there and purported and what purported to be an interview 
with the late Marquis of Salisbury on the political situation in South Africa. In this interview, Lord Salisbury is supposed to have expressed the view that Rhodes should be advanced to the position of Premier of Cape Colony. To put the matter beyond all doubt, the princess showed Rhodes's private secretary the text of statement purporting to be signed by Lord Salisbury, and a telegram which she stated she had received from him inviting her to an interview. It came out afterwards that the telegram was not genuine, as it was not Lord Salisbury, but the princess who had sent it to herself that the interview had never taken place, and that, moreover, Lord Salisbury's signature had been forged. During the year 1901, she passed checks to the aggregate amount of 29,000 pounds, signing them with the name of Cecil Rhodes. Following upon this, she was arrested and sentenced to 18 months hard labor, now, our other sources say two years, but that's okay. A full account of this affair and of other exploits of this forgerous and adventurous may be found in the memoirs of two of Cecil Rhodes' private secretaries, entitled Cecil Rhodes, His Private Life by His Private Secretary, Philip Jordan, London, 1910, and Cecil Rhodes, The Man and His Work, by one of his private and confidential secretaries, Gordon Lesseur, published in London in 1913. Both books may be seen at the library of the University in Göttingen. And remember that our author is a German, writing in Germany. After leaving South Africa, this woman did not alter her way of life. In 1921, she was arrested at the instance of two hotels in New York for having piled up bills for meals and then disappeared without paying them. Now, in our, in our 1917 New York Times article, it was stated that she had been in trouble in the London courts for doing that same thing in London. And Bergemeister concludes, a suitable witness indeed to prove that the protocols are a forgery. The patently false statement that the protocols were first drawn up after the Russo-Japanese War in 1905 was very awkward to the chief expert loosely at the trial in Bern. So he, in his turn, proceeded to falsify the evidence and with the object of adding verisimilitude to the statement made by Rosiewill, he, in his expertise, unobtrusively altered the year 1905 to 1895. He was compelled by Fleischauer seven months later to own up to this before the court. Even this incident produced no effect upon the biased judge. There are, moreover, definite grounds for the supposition that Landman laid before the princess what was definitely a text, the main contents of which had been prepared beforehand and which was afterwards ornamented by a few personal comments of her own. It was also stated that she was paid the unusually high sum of $500 for the interview by Lewis Marshall, the Benai Brith Mason and leader of American Jewry. 
This, of course, was no honorarium, but hush money. Now, we've um, preparing for this program. I didn't bother quoting it, but I did see a claim in one Wikipedia article related to the protocols. I saw a claim that the 1905 date came because there was a typo in Rosie Will's interview that she didn't really mean 1905. So the Jews are going to keep on lying. As long as they run their mouths, all they do is lie. When a Jew moves his lips, he's lying. At the Russian language website, polit.ru, and the links will be included with these notes when we post this at Christagenia later this evening, there was an online article published in July 2009 by Lev Aronov, Henrik, Baron, and Dmitry Zubarev entitled Princess Catherine Rodziwill. And the protocols of the elders of Zion. The hoax as a lifestyle. And the hoax they speak of isn't about the protocols. It's about the conduct of Catherine Rodziwill. These Russian historians also highly question the integrity of Rodziwill and what may have been her motivation. The introduction to the article summarizes its first few paragraphs and concludes that the role of the princess in the story remains mysterious. We don't think it's too mysterious. We think that she needed money. She needed money, so she went ahead and she wrote this. Um, well, when she got to New York anyway, she wrote these Jews that were interested in discrediting the protocols, and they were more than happy to pay her for her so-called testimony because the, um, the authors of this article, who really have nothing to gain by it, explain that the Jews had contacted her because she first wrote Felix Warburg. We're going to paraphrase the opening paragraphs because the translation of the article, because it is in the Russian language, right? I don't read Russian. I have to use Google Translate. But the translation of the article wasn't dramatically perfect. So we're paraphrasing. And we'll post links so that you could judge our paraphrase for yourself. In January 1921, the famous American financier and a prominent Jewish activist, Felix Warburg, received a letter signed by Princess Catherine Rodziwill. Now, these authors claim to reproduce the letter in the appendix of the book from which this article was extracted. I, of course, don't have access to the book, but this is what they state on the website in the article. She had written 
because there had arisen a topic of the protocols of the elders of Zion a couple of years earlier to haunt the Jewish community in Western Europe and the United States. After receiving her letter, Warburg sent a letter to Louis Marshall, senior lawyer and public figure, chairman of the American Jewish Committee in the recent past, and the head of the Committee of Jewish Delegates to the Peace Conference at Versailles in 1919. On February 25th, 1921, so perhaps a little over a month after Ronsiewicz had written to Warburg, the weekly The American Hebrew and Jewish Messenger published an interview with the editor of the aforementioned Princess in which she said that she not only knows by who and when this document was produced, but saw the original in French. She named a number of persons involved in the pre-revolutionary Russian special services, the generals P.A. Sherevin and P.V. Ozhitskogo, head of the Foreign Police Department Agency, P.I. Rachkowski and his assistant, M.V. Golowinski and I.F. Manashevitz Manoilova. Now, this article was supposedly reprinted by the New York Times, this famous interview with Catherine Rodziwill. This interview with the princess, soon published in France, was the first evidence, and they put quotes around the word evidence, as if they don't believe it, was the first evidence that the protocols are a political forgery born in the depths of the security services of the state, which no longer exists. The testimony of Princess Rotiwil caused a significant response in the press, although some information immediately appeared in the press regarding errors and obvious anachronisms. It created the basis for the so-called police version of the origin of the protocols, which is still very common in the popular and partly in the scientific literature of the protocols. In other words, academics and laymen alike are still repeating these Jewish lies, which were first fabricated to discredit the protocols. As for the anti-Semitic writers and historians, because our authors are not openly anti-Semitic, that, they're, that they are um, presenting themselves as objective Russian historians, it's um, still not fashionable to be an anti-Semite in Putin's Russia. As for the anti-Semitic writers and historians, they say of E. Radziwill, E. Katerina, her Russian name, that on the one hand, here is yet another proof of the omnipotence of the world power behind the scenes, and on the other, that it is contra another controversial episode in the biography of a person who was for a long time compromised. She was compromised. She needed money. The Jews paid her for her testimony, which was all bullshit. There's no doubt about it. 
Aronov and his fellow writers throughout their article do see clearly through the lies and deceit of Catherine Ronsiewill. They will also agree with our author, Dr. Bergemeister, in many of his other assessments concerning these lies as well. Yet it was not their task to validate the protocols. The objective of their writing is only to determine the actual history of the document and to assess its reception in the West. We shall be hearing more from them, them as well when this series continues. Tomorrow night, I'm sorry, tomorrow afternoon, Sen Longshanks in part two of our series, Invading Britain, then and now, it always comes down to treachery. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. And good night.